He has a varied resume. He's worked in broadcasting. He's worked in healthcare. He's been a chaplain. For more than 20 years, he's been a local church pastor. And recently, he wrote a book that once I picked up, I just couldn't put down. His name is Pastor John Baker. I'm John Bradshaw, and this is our conversation. John Baker, thanks so much for joining me. Good to be here. Now, we're going to cover a lot of things, including a book you wrote. And here it is. As for me and my outhouse, we will serve the Lord. Now, um, before we get to but the title, some people are going to wonder about a title like that. Why in the world did you call a book, As for me and my outhouse, we will serve the Lord? My wife and I, well, I had been called into the ministry five times and I kept saying no. Finally, when I did say yes... We moved to Appalachia, and it was there that we said, okay, now that we're doing God's will, we're going to be blessed. And we bought a house after much looking and found out that we ended up being defrauded almost the full value of the house. And in fact, the house didn't have a septic tank, and so the county was going to make us leave the house until we could provide something. And so we got a professional uh, you know, construction site bathroom and used it for five and a half years, thereby getting the title for my book. As for me and my, so you had an outhouse that you used for five and a half years. All right, today you're a pastor, man of God, leading churches. You've done that for decades now. Let's back up. We'll go back to kind of near the beginning. Where did you spring from? Where did you begin? Uh, I grew up in New England. My dad was a pastor and um all my life, uh, even at the earliest age of seven years of age, my dad was a school teacher at the time, and I just said to both my mom and dad, I want to be a pastor. And I don't think the Lord forgot that, even though as I went and progressed to get into college, I always felt that nagging thing that I was going to become a pastor, but I wanted to kind of work around the edges, so I double majored in communications and pastoring. Okay, well, where did that take you in the short term? Well, I worked in broadcasting uh, in a number of radio stations. I was a news director of several stations in Texas and, and went to Vermont, etc. Um, but it's uh, it, as as um, in small market radio, it's like crime; it doesn't pay. Yep. And so I had to progress and went back to school and got food management and ended up becoming a food service director of nursing homes and then a hospital. And that's when I ended up uh, also doing chaplaincy work. Okay. So when when the opportunity came to chaplaincy work was that a natural or was that a what in the world or was it hey maybe this is coming back around to that prayer i prayed as a little boy you know it, it was just so natural um you know it was a uh i loved it. it it was it was like being a camp counselor every day you get a new set of campers and i really enjoyed that and so that kind of got me thinking about maybe becoming a pastor later on but i didn't do that i went immediately into healthcare management and did that for a good four or five years before then the call to ministry came. And how did that call come? <sighs> yeah, <laughs> They were looking for somebody to go to Eastern Kentucky, where we had served for five years at a little Appalachian hospital. And our name came up. And each time our name came up, um, the, the president uh, that was looking for a pastor, uh, we didn't look like quite the fit. And our name would come up before the nominating committee three, four, and five times. And each time he'd say, no, we're going to get somebody else. And then our name would come up. And finally, on the fifth time, he goes, I don't know who this guy is, but I have to meet him. And so he, when I was working in a healthcare assignment in Daytona Beach, I get a call at 1020 at night 
um, asking me if I would like to interview for a pastor's job in eastern Kentucky. And I'd been praying about it because health care had been so topsy-turvy that I had lost my job or had to be, you know, reassigned or what have you. And so we were open to anything. And that's what our prayer had been. And so the next day he flew down to Daytona and met with us. And uh, of course, the, the rest is history. So how soon did you know? You met him and you said, this is the thing, this is what I'm going to do? Or did it take a while to shake out? No, you know, the, well, what was interesting was that, you know, he asked us if we wanted to uh, become a pastor. And I said, well, whatever the Lord wants. But I was working in healthcare, and it finally landed with a really secure company. The others, four of the five companies I worked for, either had sold or gone bankrupt. And so this fifth company, things were going extremely great. And I said, Lord, if you want us to be in the ministry, you have to make it very clear. Well, the next day, I got a phone call from corporate saying, everybody in Florida, all the the nursing homes that we own, has to be on a mandatory phone call. And at 10 o'clock, we found out that all 54 nursing homes in this chain were being sold immediately. Oh. And so I, I said, Lord, you know, I asked you to make it known to me, and you pretty much made it clear that I didn't want to have to go through another you know, new company and lose my benefits and do the whole thing over again. And so that was our cue that it was time to move to, into ministry. So it wasn't just a move to ministry, but it was a move to Eastern Kentucky, which in some parts of ministerial circles is referred to as the Far Eastern Division. It's, it's a fascinating place, salt of the earth people, but it's kind of a different world. So wh- how did that manifest itself? Or did it feel like a culture shock or a real big change, or did you just ease in with no trouble at all? Well, this is where God is amazing, because we had come uh, from Vermont, originally at, at the beginning, uh, when I was working as a food manager of a healthcare facility, to Kentucky to work as a food service director of this hospital. And so we spent five years in eastern Kentucky, and then went off for four years only to then return. And I think it was God's way of kind of prepping us sure. because if you've, if you've moved from Daytona Beach to Hippo, Kentucky, which is the name of our town, you, you have shock. In, like, you know, you have to drive 120 miles to an olive garden. Uh, those were things that were really hard to get used to. And so I think God was just kind of prepping us sure. all along the way to come back to uh, eastern Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I want to talk to you about the house soon, but but first let me ask you about this. So you dived into ministry, mm-hmm. having had some experience with chaplaincy work and mm-hmm. so forth, and you're a people person. You work in with people and in people-oriented services. How was that transition into pastoral ministry? How did you find that? I, to be honest with you, if if anybody's ever worked in healthcare, healthcare is to me the only business in the world where they want you to make omelets without breaking eggs. I mean, they were always asking you to do the impossible. And so I dealt with conflict. I dealt with state surveyors. I dealt with, you know, all these various things. So by transitioning into the ministry, in, in reality, there wasn't much that they could throw at me that I hadn't seen before. And so I praise the Lord for that, because when we moved to Eastern Kentucky, there was, as you'll see in my book, there was so many different things that required me to draw on experiences that I had. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have known how to do it. Yeah. I read this book with uh, fascination and interest and and got a lot of laughs and it was I learned some things now in the interest of full disclosure we go back a lot of years we had pastored in the same area mm-hmm. general geographical locations well we've known each other for years and years I'm blessed to be able to call you a friend and and now my friend is, a, is an author of a book like this and you know along the way I'd heard about the house I'd heard about the experiences you had I'd heard but only a little mm-hmm. and in here man you could have written another book 
talking about the same thing. So let's talk about the house. What happened? Well, when we arrived, we were looking for a house. And uh, one of the things that we recognized back there is there was a lot of problems with individuals who who will take your pay but not do the job. Mm -hmm. And so our point was, if we're going to find a house, we want to make sure that we do our due diligence and have it have it, you know, surveyed and checked and inspected, etc. One of the funny things was that our real estate broker uh, wanted us to buy this one house. And she says, oh, it's it's across the street from a floodplain. And I went, no. And she says, what do you mean? I says, my luck in the past years, th- that's going to be flooded. She says, it's never in 100 years been flooded before. And I said, I'm sorry, I know differently. <laughs> and so we said, yeah. no. Yeah, amen. So then we took this house. Well, <laughs> Either or would have caused us great pain because two years after the fact, that original house that had never seen water before was swept away in a massive 100-year flood. Oh, well. So even though we had the issues involving the present house that we had purchased, um, it, it just challenged us because we had a very uh, large district. We were traveling five, 6,000 miles a month. And so with all the challenges there and then to have the challenges with the house, really, really, you know, one thing about it, though, is I remember my mom and dad came to visit and they see the outhouse sitting outside our door. And my mother says, what's this? And I says, this is our bathroom. And um, they do, they only stayed 24 hours. Um, and my wife, my wife, tongue in cheek, said, you know, if I'd known it was this easy, I would have bought one of these things 17 years ago. <laughs> so anyway, it, th- there were some uh, things that really, uh, you know, as you know, in the book, a lot of things happened to us, uh, like fire and mudslide and everything else that, uh, but God, through every step of the way, not only provided for us, but gave us things to smile and laugh about. That's right. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to tell the, the entire story of the book because it's a great book, and it's one of those books I picked up and really just didn't want to put it down. I wanted to see what was going to happen next. It's really well written. Um, I don't want to call it a real page turner because that just sounds cliched, but it really is. And uh, I read it through in no time at all. But let's talk about what's in the book. So you move there, and, and this is the, the, the crux of the thing. There's far more to it than the story of the house. Um, I'd like to talk about one or two of those things, too, before we're done. But you bought a house, and then you discovered that not everything was as it had been represented. Right. What was first? Because as I read this, I think, oh, wow, that's terrible. Can't get any worse. And then it does. And you think, oh, it can't get any worse. And then it does. And it just about broke you financially, probably emotionally, so where did it start with the house? I mean, you buy a house. What can possibly go wrong? Well, within six months of buying it, the the main water line underneath our hill blew. Come to find out they used inferior pipe, and so that had to be all redone. Uh, then we started blowing pipes underneath the house like aneurysms. We'd have people over to the house, and, and we're sitting in the dining room, and we hear these huge bangs. It was like somebody taking a chair and hit the floor really hard. Turns out it was floor joists that were fracturing because of the weight of the people in the room. And so as we were going through this long, uh, we had to sue the federal government on this house because of, uh, because of the person that had owned it prior. Now, and wait, Just a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. Floor joists were blowing out. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Well, within a month... 
of of moving into the house, we found the electric bill was super high and what have you. So I got my flashlight and I crawled under the house and I found all these fractured floor joists. I found uh, you know inferior insulation. I found wiring that didn't meet code, and uh, it, it was very perplexing being only there a month to find this, and yet nobody was willing to help. I mean, we we went, uh, we searched 42 law firms or attorneys to represent us on this case, and nobody would help us because there's no money in it. That's the reason, because there's no, well, yeah. you, you, you would have paid them, right? Uh, yeah. So there's money in it. Well, that's the reason why we had to use the outhouse, because all the money we could save, we were using to, to give a lump sum to an attorney. Hey, so um, the floor joists were blowing out. And you mentioned that the wiring was was in, inappropriate, inefficient. Mm-hmm. I mean, what had gone on? Well, what was interesting is, and I had I had samples of it. The, the, the gentleman that owned it prior to me considered himself a a uh, carpenter, but he didn't know how to solder, and so he would use you know radiator hose and then screw clamps to hold pipes together, and he would use you know uh, uh, plastic pipe that wasn't meant for water to, and, and you you'd go into the house and you'd find these things look like aneurysms they were ready to explode and so one day when we finally called this this uh this plumbing company said hey could you come and look at this and see what's going on because we, we, we were forever trying to replace things and that's where in the book you know he comes out and he says pastor it's the worst i've ever seen we can fix this for a thousand dollars i said what are you going to do and he goes burn it and I laughed and I went, oh, you're kidding, right? He goes, no, no, it's the worst we've ever seen, $1,000, you know. And I went, oh, no, 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 <laughs> we can't do that. So I went to a friend of mine in the community who was a retired police officer. And I said, Jeff, you're not going to believe this. But I said, they offered me $1,000 to burn my house. Well, he responds, that's terrible. Me thinking that he thought that their offer was oh, yeah. unscrupulous. Yeah. He goes, oh, no, that's way overpriced. 500 is more within line. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So it was, it was a unique area uh, in that everybody that we had paid to inspect it just took the money and ran. Didn't do anything. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering about that. I'm wondering how come you didn't find out about this before you went in? You paid to have inspections done. Well, I paid to have inspections, and that area is known for its copperheads and rattlesnakes and what have you. So, you know, when they were later on telling me, well, how come you didn't crawl under the house and check it yourself? I said, well, that's why I pay people. I'm a big guy. I'm not going to get under a crawl space and then come face-to-face with a copperhead or what have you. That's the reason why I pay people. And so that that did come up, and and I think that that, uh, gave justification to to the judge of my sincerity. But you had paid people, and they simply hadn't done it. Correct. You ordinarily expect people to do it. Did you figure out why the power bill was so extremely high? Uh, yeah, it's because the insulation was inappropriate. Another thing, too, we found out after we had uh, uh, paid really good uh, you know, electricians to come in and rewire the whole house, they found pockets of, of junction boxes up above that had caught fire. They were charred and that we didn't know, but, but God kept it only to that junction box. And there was several around that that had happened. I mean, there were so many... I remember one day my daughter went to plug in something in the wall and all of a sudden a flame that long came out and charred the wall. Yeah, that'll happen. So, so, I mean, we we found... I mean, that book doesn't even cover the things that we found in that house. Pastoring is a complicated animal. I mean, 
And, and, and it's wonderful. It's a fantastic work. But it calls on you. It makes great demands on you. It's a draining sort of a work. That's why you, pastors need to be connected to God so he can continue to fill you up, fill you up, fill you up. So you've got a very important, very taxing job filled with life and death, eternal life and death responsibilities. And this, how do you, how do you make room in your life? As a, you, had, you had how many churches at the time? Uh, three, and then I was overseeing a fourth one later on. Okay, and you put it on 6,000 miles a month. Mm-hmm. How in the world do you make, how is there room in your life for a distraction this big? You know, there was many things that we just prayed and said, Lord, this is your place. I mean, we would go and come back and find things that had happened. But, you know, what, what really brought us comfort is we recognized there's nothing in our life that wasn't given to us by God. Everything in our possession is his. All we're doing is the caretaker. It's true. So when we recognized that the house belonged to him, that the cars belonged to him, that everything else, um, you know, it, it just gave us comfort. I mean, you know, in the course of doing that, we, we lived in such a rural area that four times in five years, we hit deer and totaled our cars twice. So, I mean, there was always something going on. But you know something? God gave us a sense of humor to go through that because, you know— and this is what I want people to understand. Just because bad things happen to you a lot doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. What it means is that God is using you to witness to somebody because somebody is always watching you. Yeah. There's a fascinating story in here. And, and this is the book, As for Me and My Outhouse, We Will Serve the Lord. The, the title is funny. Don't think it's irreverent. It's, um, it's a play on fact. Um, there's a story in here. Early in the book, you go to a restaurant. You're waiting to be seated. And the, and the people out front, the wait staff, whoever they were, just looked right through you and called other people and seated other people. And you're standing thinking, what in the world? Do they not, do I offend them? Do they not want my money? What in the world? And so you decide, well, they're not going to serve me. I'll go to the restaurant down the street. And you did. And that's where God brought you into somebody's life. And it was a real uh, significant ministry situation. So you could have looked at that. It was, it was an insult or was it? Maybe their eyes were simply blinded. It was something negative, but you rolled with it, and God brought something positive out of it. You've seen God do that again and again. Well, and this was just prior to becoming a pastor. I had just lost my job as a health care administrator, and I had to go back to where we had bought our car and have it worked on and what have you. And that restaurant brought a, an amazing thing where they actually didn't see me. I, I became invisible mm-hmm. and ended up witnessing with these three young women and gave this woman hope that she did not have in, in the middle of her own trials. Important, isn't it, that when things don't go the way we think they should, maybe that's because God is in it and he's leading us on to another place, another opportunity. There's plenty more to talk about. And uh, I'm glad you've joined us for this because this is turning into a compelling conversation. With Pastor John Baker, I'm John Bradshaw. We'll be back with more of this conversation in a moment. Hello, I'm Dr. David DeRose, a specialist in internal medicine and preventive medicine. And I've been surprised over the years in working with patients and studying the medical research literature just how powerful hemorrheology is when it comes to health. You may be wondering, what is hemorrheology? Well, I call it the Methuselah Factor, and that's the title of my book. The Methuselah Factor really helps you connect with things that can help your blood be more fluid. You say, why is that important? It's important because it can help you decrease your risk of a stroke or a heart attack, even lower your risk of cancer. But it's a whole lot more than just preventing killer diseases. 
If you improve your blood fluidity, your mind will work better, you'll perform physically better, and you'll decrease your risk of dementia. So don't hesitate. Dive into the Methuselah Factor. Make a difference in your life and the life of those that you love. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. I'm John Bradshaw. With me, my guest, Pastor John Baker. He is the author of this book, As For Me and My Outhouse, We All Serve the Lord. It is a wonderful tale of God's intervention, God's grace, God's providence. It's fun. You'll enjoy it. You'll smile and you'll see, you'll see the evidence of God's great, uh, great work. It's available, by the way, at all the places you would expect it to be available, Amazon, Barnes and & Nobles, and, and so forth. Uh, as for me and my outhouse, we will serve the Lord. So let's talk about the outhouse. You had that because the septic situation wasn't good. Correct. It was. It's not that it wasn't good. It was a complete disaster. Right. It was. You must have been astonished. So explain that situation for us. Well, you know, after we ended up getting that, you know, one of the things that I, as I expressed earlier, was the fact that people are watching you. Yeah. And as the story began to unfold, because of the interaction we were having with people in the community, it gave me opportunities to preach at a lot of different churches. Uh, you know, Methodist, Baptist, you name it, we went all over that area. And as they would hear the story, they would go, oh, you must be Job. And I would laugh and I'd say, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Because at the end of Job's trials, God gave them 10 more children and my wife would kill me. So <laughs> so anyway, uh, but like I said, it ended up that we ended up uh, witnessing to the gentleman who came and cleaned it every week. Uh, we ended up talking with a whole host of people. And um, but I, to, to use one for five over five years. Yeah, that was that was. A bit so of a what was the situation with the septic? There wasn't any. No, no, but you, there were toilets in there that flushed. Well, that's true, but there was no tank in the ground. What he was doing was, he was this is an, something that's happened in eastern Kentucky that people aren't aware about. It's an environmental hazard that there's probably 11,000 homes in eastern Kentucky that call straight piping. They have no septic tank. They just run it into a local river or stream. And so that's what this, this gentleman was doing. How did you discover that that's what was happening? Well, one day we had a torrential rains and there was a, a, a steel lid that collapsed in my yard. And I thought it was the septic tank itself. Well, it wasn't. All the guy had done was dug a hole, brought in the pipe here, had a landscape pipe coming out at the top. And then every time we'd flush the toilets, it would run out and into a uh, stream down below. So there was no, there was no septic tank at all. And you yeah. did not know that? Didn't know it. There was That's, no septic tank? No, they'd done the test. They, had, they, they said, you know, they came back, the perk test worked, everything was fine. Um, so, and, and you know, that's just one of the many problems. Yeah, that would be that would be more problem than just that. Well, one. people didn't want to stay with us. Let's put it that way. And so that did, did have one benefit. Yeah, there anyway, you go. Yeah. yeah. So you you found out about that the hard way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you wrestled with that, and you spoke with your wife, and you said, uh, "How do you how do you navigate that? What 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 was your plan?" Well, there were times that, as you would think, we would get uh, depressed uh, and what have you. And you know, through the time we we witnessed with our attorney. And uh, the attorney would see us coming in and would be laughing and, and, and what have you. And he would say, how do you guys stay so happily married? Uh, you know, I, he'd been married three times. And, mm. and he's like, you guys just always seem to just, you know, be so lovey and what have you. And I says, well, we'll never divorce. And he says, well, how can you be sure? And I says, because no one wants the house. And so he would laugh. And, uh, but as I said, it, it gave us opportunities to share. And in so doing, it encouraged other people. You know, yeah. I had talked to you earlier about, you know, anointed detours where God 
places things in your life or what have you that seems to be roadblocks. And in reality, it may be beneficial to you. It may be for somebody else. But but either way, we are we are being used to to uh, present a side of the Lord that that, you know, that will yeah. encourage people. Yeah, a lot of people would get into a situation like this and say, God, you've abandoned me. You didn't have that attitude even for a moment. Heavens no. Now, why was it so easy for you not to go to that place? As I said, I'd been in healthcare. Uh, you know, we we had moved f- like uh, the like I said, four or five of the companies I worked for had gone bankrupt or sold in the course of two or three years. We'd moved cross country back and forth umpteen times. We had been through the ringer, and so this was just another day doing business. I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. Now, the problem was it, it didn't just end with a septic tank; it went on. We you know we had a, a, a fire. Uh, somebody had driven by the house and thrown out a cigarette. That, that's what caused the fire. Correct. And uh, my wife was, I was down in Florida with a family member that was seriously ill. My wife was stayed behind. She smelled smoke. And then she saw the back part of our huge uh, garage on fire. Open the door. Everything's in flames. So it, the, the fire had gone up and around. It consumed our barn, garage, all the hill. Because we had like six and a half acres of, of a mountainside. And then it came back down around. And it would have caught the house on fire. She was outside with her little garden hose trying to keep the house from catching on fire because it took the volunteer fire department a good 20, 25 minutes to get there. Mm. The struggle, and, and this is where we learn, and, this, and actually this encouraged us, the, the, um, the fire chief couldn't believe that the, that the boundary of the fire only affected our property. It went, the boundary of our house and the, it went up half up the mountain, stopped at our, where somebody else's property was, went all the way across and then came back down. Only our property was the one that burned. That would be enough to make you think you're being singled out. Well, but, but actually it made us laugh because we knew this was the devil. He's trying to discourage us yeah. and we didn't want to be discouraged. So when you, when you have that kind of epiphany, it actually encourages you. Yeah, it's really interesting that you're able to see this for what it was. Yeah. A lot of people have a hardship in their life and they see it for what it isn't. Some, some person will attack, God hates me, God's against me. Instead of understanding we're caught in a battle between good and evil and sometimes these negative things happen simply because there is someone out to get you. That's the devil and he wants you to relinquish your faith in God. Well, and, you know, there were times that we would say, Lord, and, and there was difficult times. I mean, we, we sure. would say, Lord, can you, can you let us catch our breath? Because, you know, when when the fire occurred and the, the power lines fell off our garage and landed in water, it short-circuited stuff. So inside our house, it, it was a maze of wires. You know, we we would have a plug work here and a plug not work there, and the, and the refrigerator would be plugged in the hallway, and it was just kind of crazy. And uh, we were asked to go for a job interview on the West Coast. My wife's like, well, how can we leave with this situation and she's I said well you know it's God's situation what can we do so we left well what we didn't know is the four days we were gone we're on the way to the airport and my uh, I get a call from my neighbor going have you seen your house like no why what happened well we've had torrential rains here and because there was no vegetation on the hillside to to hold back any of the water there was a huge mudslide and it blew out this this embankment in front of our house and our house came within probably 10 feet of sliding down and, and landing on top of the road down below us so we were like we couldn't live in our house i couldn't even in fact when we arrived back home i had to crawl on my hands and knees up this this steep hill around this huge mass of mud just to get our few supplies out so we could have some clothes to live and and we ended up living in a hotel for almost a month 
until we could get somebody to, to fix that. Did you ever think of calling that plumber back and counter-offering <laughs> and saying, I hear 500 <laughs> you know, is a more appropriate? The, the funny thing about it is, and this is where we got our sense of humor from, um, it's a miracle how it all happened, but we, the insurance wouldn't pay because we didn't have flood insurance, but why do you want flood insurance when you live halfway up a mountain? Oh, yeah. So FEMA came along and said, well, we can't do anything because it, your house hasn't slid down the embankment yet, and so you know the only money we can give you is to stay in a hotel. And so while staying at that hotel, we met a, a housekeeper who told us, you know, the Division of Mines might have a reason for this because there was strip mines all around here and that could have caused the runoff which caused your problem well that's exactly what happened god uh had them come they did a they did a a survey of the property and found out a a former strip mine had caused the runoff and the day they were there to 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 look at it we had torrential rains it was taking out part of my driveway and everything so they saw it firsthand and uh, it, it was just phenomenal. What, what, what made us laugh was that when they, they had the project to repair this whole thing, they put up a huge sign in my yard. Now, mind you, you probably one day, because of your fame, you might have a building named after you. Who knows? I had a natural disaster named after me because they had a huge billboard that said John Baker mudslide. And so <laughs> it was like, all right, I'll that. be known for disaster. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> hey, so it worked out... Did it work out in the end? Not that I want to give the entire game away because I want to encourage people to get the book. You can get it from Amazon, you mentioned, you get it from Barnes & Noble, yeah. Target, certain bookstores here and there. When you look back on it, did it work out badly? Did it work out well? We were forced into negotiation by the federal government. They wore us out after seven years, seven and a half years, uh, to settle with for about 60 cents on the dollar. And I had friends. My employer sent volunteers to help us, you know, fix everything and, and everything. And so we were grateful because our prayer had been, Lord, after everything we've been through, if this house can be restored, that's our cue that we can move to our next assignment. Thinking, you know, and this is where you, you, you have the idea that if I do everything God wants, then everything's going to be great. And I just want people to know that's not true. There may be lessons still to be learned. Because we had, um, uh, you know, got the house totally restored. The first person that came to look at it said, oh, we love this. We're going to pay full price. Their financing fell through, and we had not one person come and look at it from then on. It was a small community. It was known as the troubled yeah. house. Yeah. And so, uh, sadly, after a year, uh, it was foreclosed on. Or two years, it foreclosed on us because we, we just couldn't afford two house payments uh, at the same time. So we lost it. Is it still standing today? It is. And yet what's interesting is they only had one family living it for about a year and a half, the first first year and a half. It's been empty for the last eight years. Oh, really? Really. Huh. You've confronted this with this irrepressible sunniness, this relentless good humor. And you're a funny guy. You've got a great sense of humor. When I say funny guy, you know what I mean. Right. Um, where'd the sense of humor come from? Your ability to see, and I don't mean silliness. I don't mean that. Right. Your ability to see a positive when there's a negative or to see the, the humorous side in something. Where'd that come from? You know, Scripture tells us there's seasons. You know, there's time to laugh, time to cry, time to dance. I prefer to be in the season where you, you're, you have laughter. I mean, I, I see myself as kind of a golden retriever type. I like to just play and, and have a wonderful time. There are people, though, that are always serious. 
that are always looking at the at the downside of things. My mom and dad probably were the funniest couple I think I've ever met. They just had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, my dad was extremely engaging, and I and I believe that that's. That was something that he passed on to me. But um, humor has opened so many doors. Uh, you know, and, and there are some people that will say, you know, pastors shouldn't be funny. I don't know. Look, when, when Peter went down under the water and it, when he was walking towards Jesus, we've seen people thrown in a pool with their clothes on. You can't help but laugh. That's right. it, I, I have to assume that Jesus must have laughed at his, you know, is what happened. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I know that laughter is a medicine. That's what the Bible tells us. And uh, I prefer to pass that along as best I can. Yeah, yeah. Ministry, you've been at it a little while now. And uh, you must have learned some things. I want to ask this question, but I want to see if I can ask it in a way that's appropriate, not inappropriate. You're in Appalachia. It's a rare sort of a place. Mm -hmm. It's probably 1,500 miles, I don't know, from New York City, but it must be in another universe. What do you learn about people in, in Appalachia? I know that you, because, you know, the people got Appalachian accents. Uh, if anyone thinks I'm being disparaging, I'm not. I'm trying to ask this in a very positive way. What did you learn about people or from people by being there in, it's a rarefied environment. You know, it's not Dallas. It's not Chicago. It's not New York. It ain't even Lexington. What, what what did you learn? What did you learn about people? What what did you learn from people when you were in that really interesting place? You know, the one thing about Appalachia that breaks my heart is the fact that they have, because of maybe lack of education and and socioeconomic, people have taken advantage of them horribly. Um, you know, they've been robbed of of coal funds and and natural gas funds and what have you. So they're very very um, suspect of anybody new coming in. Uh, when we came in. How do you win people over? Yeah. The only way you can win people over is to love them and to have a sense of humor. And I believe uh, that helped us develop the kind of relationships in the community that we needed to flourish. And, um, you know, we like I said, we, we went to all different types of churches. We went to all different types of services. And what was crazy was I remember we went to this one uh, a church that invited us to this, this dinner by the river and uh, it was a picnic, and they handed out guitars like you and I would hand out a napkin at a picnic. And I went, oh, I'm sorry, I, I don't play. And they looked at me like, what? I mean, they couldn't believe it. The, the culture of music and, and what have you was just so vibrant there. I loved it because I loved to sing. And so uh, we had a group that we would laugh about. We would, we, four of us would sing, and we would call ourselves the Uncalled For, um, oh, just to be good. funny. But it was a gospel group, and we just had so much fun sharing the gospel and singing at all different places. Uh, and so that, that's one thing I just really, really love about my Appalachian friends. So even during your time, you go through this personal crisis with this home from hell and yet you're finding warmth and joy and fellowship and friendship in the people of the community oh absolutely and, and you know to be honest with you people don't remember uh, what you say to them they only remember how you treat them yeah and so um anything that w- that i would be going through paled in comparison i had a buddy of mine that was a that was a pastor there in the area he was dying of cancer and he would come to me going oh john i feel so bad about your house and what have you and i said you know i said uh mark let me ask you something it's perspective he goes what do you mean i said would you trade your problems for mine i mean he had five kids you know and he goes oh man in a heartbeat i said that's my perspective 
I'm not going to worry about what I'm dealing with because I know you have it worse. Mm. So I'm going to do everything I can. And that's one of the things I think it's important for people to do. You've got to maintain a level of normalcy no matter what you're going through. And you've got to put your eyes on, on Christ but on other people. How can I help them ease their burden? There's always somebody who's got it worse than you do. Let me ask this question. How have you kept your eyes on Christ? What have you done to keep yourself spiritually strong, spiritually well, healthy during a time where, I mean, this was relentless attack. It was really difficult for years and years. What were you doing? Were you doing anything out of the ordinary or tailored to help yourself spiritually? What were you doing intentionally to grow in your faith in God? Well, read voraciously. I mean, I always try to get my hands on things that would encourage me. Um, uh, writing was another thing that I, I would do. Um, and some of the things that I would write, uh, other churches uh, in my community would put in their bulletins just as an encouragement to, to their members. Nice. But um, I just think that it's important to uh, to stay connected by staying in the Word. You know, uh, one of the things I do is I send out devotionals to people. Um, and share the Word of God so that people will say to you, I don't understand this, what do you think? Right now I send out two, over 200 every day, and I have to translate it into um, uh, three languages plus English. Uh, I do it in Urdu, uh, Russian, and um, Spanish. Well, so you learned, you learned to, to, to feed on the Word and remain encouraged in the Lord even when you're going through something that was just, mm-hmm. uh, it was a titanic headache, wasn't it? You know, uh, I am so blessed that God gave me a woman that was just amazing. I don't know anybody else that could have had an outhouse for five and a half years, that could have had a house that almost burnt down, have a house to almost go down a hill. I mean, this woman is is a, a saint, and yeah. she'll agree. <laughs> <laughs> and she probably should. Uh, where do you think that came from? I mean, how does... People divorce for far less, mm-hmm. for far less. What did you guys do to, to keep your marriage strong in that time? Was it intentional or, or my question is, or was your bond already so strong, so healthy that you guys were ready for anything? We had a real strong bond, um, but, you know, we, we have a sense of humor. I mean, truly, our love for the Lord and service, but a sense of humor is, is key. Yeah, well, it's served you well so far. In a moment, we're going to talk about ministry what you've learned along the way, some of the challenges and the blessings of a, of, of a life in ministry. We'll talk a little bit more about the book as well. The book is, As For Me and My Outhouse, We Will Serve the Lord. With Pastor John Baker, I'm John Bradshaw, and this is Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, New York City, Marilyn Monroe, and Thailand all have one thing in common. Like Abraham and Jacob in the Bible, they all had their names changed, and God intends to give you a new name. Don't miss Your New Name, brought to you by It Is Written. Discover that God has a new name and a new experience waiting for you. Recount some of the greatest, most dramatic stories in the Bible. And you'll see that God still has big plans for His people, even when they stumble. Your new name will take you from Genesis to Revelation as you discover the ultimate destination for those who have faith in Jesus. Don't miss Your New Name, 
brought to you by It Is Written TV. Welcome back to Conversations brought to you by It Is Written. My guest is Pastor John Baker, the author of As For Me At My Outhouse. We will serve the Lord. It is an encouraging tale. It's a remarkable tale. Just when you think it couldn't get any more impossible, it does. And, and, then, and then God brought you out of this thing. So you were able to leave that situation behind when you exited and, and took up ministerial duties in another place. What was it like to, for that burden, that hassle, to just be gone? It, it, you know, it, it's, like, it's like being cured of something. You live with something for so long and it's gone. How'd that feel? You know, I remember in uh, Scripture where it talks about Job, and every time you turn around, you know, they would say to him, um, the Amalekites have stolen your goats, and the Hittites have stolen your camels, and and it was always something that was hitting you. When we got away from that, it was was like just a beautiful breath of fresh air. Um, I I arrived at my minister's meetings in in, uh, Tennessee, West Tennessee, and I told all my friends, it's good to be here in Tennessee. And the first thing they said is, do you have any bathrooms? And I said, yes, we are, God blessed us with three. And they go, well, great. Uh, are they all inside? <laughs> so they had a lot of fun with me on that. Yeah, I bet they did. I bet they did. So ministry, it's, um, I think it's a wonderful job. I, I don't think there's any, any up from there. You, personally, it becomes a pastor, in my opinion, starts at the top. And then some people get demoted to administration and, and that sort of thing. What are, the, what are the unique blessings in ministry for you? You've been at this a little while now. What do you, what, what do you consider to be two, three, or four, or five of the great blessings of being involved in ministry? You know, one of the things that I try to do is I try to think outside the norm. There are many pastors that come and feel like that they, they're only supposed to serve their church. And we come with the idea of we need to serve the community. One of the highest compliments that we were paid back in Kentucky was the fact that uh, they said, you know, John Baker is everybody's pastor. Nice. Uh, when we left, we were blessed. The The uh, Catholic Church had a goodbye luncheon for us. The convent had a goodbye dinner for us um, and, you know, involved us in their evening prayers and prayed for our ministry. We had developed so many friends, and we wanted to bring that to the next place we came. Yeah. Um, what, was, what was crazy was we had only been to our district, our new place, for two days, and I was immediately put in the hospital for four days with a, with a terrible uh, infection that had gone into the lining of my stomach. And uh, it was like, okay, can we at least have just a little moment where things get normal? Yeah, and yeah, so were, praise the Lord, he did that. I yeah. mean, I, it, it's just... But anyway, in regards to ministry, uh, we feel if you served the community then it offers you opportunities to be able to share with them the uniqueness of how you believe, what you believe in God. And, um, and so, we've, like I said, we've made just a lot of friends. As you would, if someone was coming into ministry and they said to you, hey, Pastor John, what are two or three things that I need to keep in mind as I enter ministry? What would you say to a young, young minister? Well, I, I think, first off, I think you need to uh, be patient. There are things that we really want, and God tells us sometimes you, you've got to wait um, I think one of the most important things is don't don't look at yourself or look at your present situations. As long as you're serving, as long as you're loving people, the the focus is not on you, because if it is, then you get stressed, you know, and all the other things that come along with it. And so I I, I you know I tell people all the time, you know, um, one of my colleagues one time told me he says, you know. Being a pastor, it's it's uh, it's unique. It's like uh, 
it's like they, they take all your blood and then complain you look pale. And so sometimes it can do that. But if you, if you develop friendships in the community, I mean, we, we, do a, we do things like a banquet for the community where we have, you know, 128 people, mostly non-members of our church that just come in and find out about Christmas. And we share with them the beauty of, of the story of the, of the birth of Christ, which is all something we have in common with everyone. And in that score, it has it truly blessed uh, not only the ministry, but all the, all the friends that we make in the process. Yeah. yeah. Now I want to ask this delicately. We talked about the blessings of ministry. If that same young minister came to you and said, I'm, I start tomorrow, what are some challenges that I might expect as a pastor? What would you say? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is the fact that you always have conflict. Uh, one of the things that I saw, I had a friend of mine introduce me to a ministry that deals in peacemaking. And it was something that I went to like a duck out of water. Back in eastern Kentucky, we lived in the same district where the Hatfields and McCoys, uh, that feud. And, and so there was a lot of bitterness and unforgiveness in that area. And so when I came to the understanding of how to make peace the biblical way, man, I, everything I could do, I would take, I would learn, I would you know, extrapolate. And that's what I use in my ministry because there are many times when you'll tell somebody, you know, I'm a pastor, and they immediately get nervous, right. you know. But if you tell them, oh, I'm a conflict coach. And I do have recognition by my denomination as a conflict coach. And so uh, that always goes like, well, what does a conflict coach do? And I said, well, do you have conflict in your life? Well, yeah. Do you have conflict with yourself? Yeah, sometimes it's hard. You know, I, I can't forgive myself. I help you deal with that. And so what it does is opens up opportunities to talk, to counsel, or do whatever. And it, it just, it's marvelous. Yeah. Over time in ministry, even in life, but over time, have you seen any trends in the church or in church members? Have behaviors changed? Have people become more like this or more like that? Or are people are just people same as they've ever been. What would you say? Well, you know, I think what happened was it was already trending, but COVID kind of put it into fast gear that we got so used to having it easy. People would stay home and just watch it is written on TV rather than go to their local church. And it, 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 you know, people aren't participating. They're not yeah. doing things in church. You know, I, I told someone one time, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting up there in years. I've had major back surgery. And, and I said, I feel like sometimes a, a horse on the way to the glue factory. And yet I've also recognized that there are some people that would ride this horse all the way to the glue factory, too. Mm-hmm. And so what you have to do is you have to kind of inspire people to see a vision beyond you know, their local church. Because if you don't have a vision, Scripture tells us where there's no vision, the people perish. You want to get your eyes off yourself. And that's the reason why in my churches, I try to get people involved in ministries that are unique. Someone might not want to sweep a floor, but they might want to serve a meal at the local soup kitchen. And so we're always trying to do things, you know, a vegetarian supper club once a month, things like that that will that will engage people. And that's what we try to do. Mm-hmm. COVID, I've had some pastors say to me, I've said, how's your church is doing? Some, not all, and some will say, our church will never recover. Hmm. And I don't know whether they, that's prophetic utterance, you know, 50 years from now, five years from now, but they've noticed that their churches are just not the same and have not bounced back and they are lesser than they were. How, how do we get beyond that, do you think? I, this is... I don't even know what kind of a question that is, but is there a way forward for churches that have taken a hit 
Some churches, there was conflict. Others, people just stayed home. Some have got out of the groove. How are we going to get past that? Well, I think one of the ways to get past that is to show people love, not tell people love, show people love. Um, You know, people are drawn to family, to friendship circles, whatever. If you're feeling affirmed and loved and, and, and what have you, you're going to be drawn to that. Our churches need to be doing that. The sad part about it is too many of our churches just want to be inward. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm like, okay, do do you have some sort of a a, a ministry? Do you have like a, a, a like a women's ministry? Well, we have a leader. Well, if you don't have a program, what good is a leader? It's like having a general with no army. And so I, I want people to to get outside that comfort zone. Invite invite somebody to dinner. My wife and I budget probably 150 to 200 dollars a month taking young people or couples out to dinner to give them a a you know, a, a place just to feel neutral where they can just let their hair down and talk and what have you. And it's just, it's opened up. At our church right now, we're back to our original uh, membership, in fact, growing. Our church now is is all different ethnicities, and we're, we're loving it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Hey, so, so how, where'd the idea come from for the book? I imagine... People said, yeah, oh, you've got to write a book. Your, your stories are so interesting. You've got to write a book. Is that what happened? You know, I, I, I really felt like one of my buddies, uh, <laughs> he was the one who came up with the title, and I went, boy, that's really, really good. Um, the, I am a storyteller, always have been. In fact, when I went to Eastern Kentucky, one of my first two sermons, I just didn't connect. And my wife says, you've got to go back to the basics of, of how Jesus did his ministry. And we always remember his sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, all the various things that he was trying to do. So I began to tell stories and I began to realize that when you tell stories, not only are people understanding the concepts better, but it engages them. And so that's what I've utilized in in what I'm doing presently in Pakistan. I I I've had this outreach ministry to uh, they saw I, I met a gentleman online who who liked a sermon that I did. And none of these pastors are are members of my faith, but I become a mentor to like 30 pastors over in Pakistan. And so I I, I send them my sermon notes and I do all these various things. But I, I train them. They, nobody's talking to them about marriage because that that area over there is is doesn't doesn't always honor the woman like they should. And so I'm, I'm beginning to show them concepts by loving them and being uh, uh, generous and uh, you know that's what's really inspiring me right now. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, is there another? Is there another book inside you? I do. I have. I'm working on actually two. I have a second one that's a, that's kind of a prequel to this. Oh yeah. That has some amazing stories, as you as you can imagine. Uh, and then another one I want to do is uh, I've I've got a publisher that has expressed interest, uh, a 365 day devotional, uh, where there's a humorous story every day. And they said, that's something that we've never seen before. And I, I just, that, that's kind of a, uh, a challenge to me. And I'd like to do that. Mm, mm, yeah. mm, mm, mm. So, so were you always a writer? You've said that you were writing in, in uh, bulletins and so forth for churches and this and that. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. When I was in college, I had a college professor that said I couldn't write. And any paper I ever did for him, he gave me a D. Oh. And so uh, when someone says I can't do something, it just propels me to, to prove them wrong. And uh, so when I got out, I ended up uh, working in healthcare out in New Mexico. And I went to a local newspaper and I said, hey, look, I'll run a, a funny column on life. 
if you'll just advertise that I work at this nursing home. And they took it. And so for a year, I was a, uh, I was a humorist columnist for them. And that then got me the creative juices to say, you know, if I've done that, maybe I should write a book. And so I began to do things piecemeal. And right now, I, I have so many articles that I just haven't published that I want to incorporate in my books. And so I, I just I find that I can, I can lose myself in it. And sometimes I like it because I can amuse myself. <laughs> Sometimes something funny happens. I'm like, you know, I'd like that. I think it makes me, it makes me laugh. Yeah, absolutely. If it, and if it moves you, it might just move somebody else mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the book, when, when I read it, it was just, it was, as I said earlier, one of those books you pick up and you, you, you can't put down. And congratulations on a job really, really well done. Uh, just fantastic. So let me ask you this. Um, as you sit down and write the prequel to the book, are you seeing, hey, there's a big, long series here? Are you, are you is there Charles Dickens inside of you or Mark Twain? I, or I, just I don't know about e- that. Easy does it. Well, you know, it's tough to get the time to write. That's right. Because when you have a couple of churches like I do, you're on the road a lot. Yep. During the COVID season, my wife and I drove double the miles that we typically did because we knew that there were so many church members that felt... Um, you know, uh, disconnected. That's really interesting. I would say many pastors drove zero the miles. Well, you know, one of the things I did is I, I kind of like to inspire some of my buddies in the community, some of the other pastors. And one of my friends said, I want to do what you do. What we would do is we would, uh, I would go out and buy gift cards and, and get, you know, Domino's or, you know, Papa John's, whatever. And then what we would do is we would deliver pizzas and then deliver the, the study quarterly or a sharing book. And then we would, you know, pass it around the door, have a prayer, and then hit the road. And it was nice. You, didn't, you could cover more territory that way. Yeah. And so he calls me up one day. He goes, I want to do that. And I'm like, okay, uh, let's do it. So then five minutes later, he calls back. He goes, well, you know I don't have a lot of money, right? So I'm like, okay. So look, I'll tell you what. I'll pay for the, the pizzas and, and I'll provide a sharing book. What's a sharing book? Trust me, you'll love it. So I did all, all these sharing books he gave to his church members as we made deliveries around the community. Oh, yeah, fantastic. So it was, so it was, it was really cute. And, and, and I've made some great friends uh, in his church. My wife and I even did a marriage enrichment thing in his church, and it was just a lot of fun. Hey, let me ask you this. As long as I've known you, it comes through in the book and, and in what you're saying here. You're a generous guy. You're also a guy who lost his shirt. Mm-hmm. But while you were losing your shirt, your house, you were still a generous guy. H- how, do you, how do you do that? I mean, when there isn't much to give, most people would say, there's just not much to give. But it seems as though, and, and I'm not asking you to toot your own horn here, but this is just a, a fact of who you are. It seems that you and Leah and your wife never have backed off from sharing what you have, whether it's a little or a lot. When I arrived in, in Tennessee, because we were doing both houses and whatever, uh, I was having to go to a check-writing place just to, to get the extra $200. And then as we began to do the brand of ministry that we found to be successful, taking people out to dinner, helping get things, supplies for people, etc., you're only relegated to like $200 in Tennessee. But if you wrote a check outside of Tennessee, you could go above that. And so every two weeks, I was driving to Murray, Kentucky to write a second check. And I was paying out the ears in interest. But what was interesting was how God blessed us. We had lived in our house for five years. And once that loss of the house came by, um, the landlord said, why don't you buy my house? And I said, well, um, you know, give me a good deal. And he called me and I prayed about it. I said, and this is the landlord in, in, that, that we live now in our okay, house. In Tennessee. Not and um, yeah. we ended up uh, buying the house at probably 
almost half was half the the going rate. Um, and it was that was the blessing that God gave us. I said, Lord, if you want us to buy it, I have this much cash, and boom, and He sold it to me for half the going rate. And uh, so God has more than blessed me for anything that I've been out financially. Now, of course, we I don't have to write check places anymore. Yeah, praise yeah, the Lord. Yeah. But it didn't stop our generosity because God is, you cannot give God. That's, that's yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that an amazing testimony? You stay true and you, you you've, as, as a faithful steward and you do what you can and God will will be there for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, fantastic. Um, very little time left. In your in your mind, what's what's the best story in this book? Most fun or most powerful? Most well, potent, the, most one meaningful. of the most powerful ones that I had was probably in there is about one of my church members that called me wanting to take her life. Yes, and I, and I ran. Tell that story. I, I, I drove as quick as I could to the house, and when I arrived at the house, you know, I said, I you know, I, I called the police. They wouldn't go in without me. So I drove as fast as I could, 35 miles to get to her house. And when I arrived, and she saw that I brought a policeman with me, she got mad. And so she pulled a gun on both of us. And so then we had to back out, and then they called the, the rest of the guys in. It, was, it turned out to probably be the biggest story in that little town's police department. But um, that, that one kind of opened my eyes to, uh, to many things. Yeah. Including the fact that you can have a church member who calls you for help, and then she turns a gun on you. Yeah. Turns to blow you away. That, that, that was very eye-opening. Uh, one thing that I have learned is that, uh, uh, you know, the, the police officer asked me, he says, does she have a gun? And I said, what woman in Eastern Kentucky doesn't have a gun? Yeah, and he goes, go. okay, then we'll, we'll wait for you to get here. Yeah. Yeah, no question. <laughs> yeah. And it all worked out okay in the end. Right. Uh, amen. Well, hey, thank you for taking your time. Thanks for coming to chat. Um, here's the book again. As for me and... My house, sorry, as for me and my outhouse, we will serve the Lord. I don't want you to be bothered if you think the title is offensive. It's not meant to be. It's about Pastor Baker and his outhouse, among other things. I think you'll really be encouraged. Great job on the book. Thank you very much. I enjoyed much. it. Like I said, I think twice already picked it up and, and just didn't want to put it down at all. I have a church in my community that gives these to people in the hospital. They say, we don't want to give flowers that die. We want to give this book. And they've bought dozens and dozens of books from me. Fantastic. And it's just been, it's been remarkable. Yeah, yeah, great yeah. stuff. Look forward to whatever you do next. Thank God for you and your pastoral ministry have been a blessing to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now you have an outreach that reaches around the world. We wish you all the very best. Thanks for being here. God bless you. God bless you as well. Really appreciate it. That's my friend, Pastor John Baker. And I'm just so glad that you've been able to participate with us in this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. With Pastor John Baker, I'm John Bradshaw. This has been Conversations, brought to you by It Is Written. It Is Written.